A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the arts and culture app. Created by Bloomberg Philanthropies, Bloomberg Connects lets you access museums, galleries and cultural spaces around the world on demand. Download the app to access digital guides and explore a variety of content. Hello, I'm Ben Luke and welcome to A Brush With, the podcast where I talk to artists about their influences, including writers, musicians, filmmakers and of course other artists, and the cultural experiences that have shaped their lives and work. And in this episode, it's A Brush With, Helen Martin, an artist who works in sculpture, text and screen printed paintings to create a rich language of forms with a remarkable breadth of materials. Her works entice us to make associations and draw meanings while remaining richly and ambiguous. Helen was born in 1985 in Macclesfield in northwest England and studied at Central St Martins in London and the Ruskin School of Fine Art at the University of Oxford, graduating in 2008. From her earliest shows, she combined two- and three-dimensional elements, creating inimitable installations that teem with objects and images. Many of her ensemble have structures that resemble furniture or architecture, some of which is manufactured and bears the sheen of industrial production. But these Constructions are often platforms for poetic and sometimes beguiling arrangements of stuff. Some objects are beautifully crafted ceramics and glass, and she's also created colourful casts of everyday things like walnuts and chicken legs. She interweaves these with found objects like orange peel or pistachio shells, things that appear to have been almost casually attached or tossed into the sculptural assemblage. But then, nothing is necessarily as it seems. Part of the joy of Helen's work is in the way it makes you look harder and to ask questions of everything you see. There are visual puns and wordplay and moments where the combinations reach a level of absurdity, even slapstick, as Helen has acknowledged. For instance, in a work called Horizontal Weather, she created two satellites with metal trays that held tiny to scale representations of all the known planets in the solar system, which were sitting on jasmineite casts of biscuits. Helen's work constantly demands that our attention shifts, which feels like a riff on the bombardments of the online experience. But her art doesn't just reflect our image-laden world, it undermines it, questions it, picks it apart. And this is no less true in her paintings. Calling them paintings is somewhat inadequate because they too sit between different genre and formats. They're screen prints but with relief elements, often including metal bars that divide them into sections. They too have unexpected material properties. Helen's frequently used nylon paint on faux leather and recently cellulose paint on aluminium. And like the sculptures, they're full of distinctive visual elements, heads and figures that veer between art historical references and cartoons, bold fields of colour, tiny calligraphic drawings and snatches of text. A series of paintings called The Almost Horse comprises 26 panels, each of identical size and corresponding to a letter in the alphabet. They were arranged in order around the Sadie Coles HQ gallery in London in September 2022. Each image featured a bronze thermometer in the form of a frog holding a raised umbrella whose patina and glass eyes changed in each painting. This temperature gauge was fixed alongside a view of a landscape with an expanse of water, grass, a tree and architectural elements whose perspective shifted with each painting. To further complicate this intriguing world that Helen had conjured, she accompanied each image with a passage of text from a fictional story she'd written with an oblique overarching narrative relating to the sculpture elements and wallpaper that completed the installation. 
And the written word is crucial to Helen's work. Many of her shows derive from her poetic texts, which reflect an idiosyncratic literary style, which reached its heights in the form of her novel, The Boiled In Between, published in 2020. Her writing's notable for its clear immersion in the wonder of words, its conjunctions, caresses, outbursts, jolts and collisions, completely consistent with her sculptures and paintings. Everything Helen touches is marked by a profound curiosity and an impulse to experiment, a desire to bring apparently unnatural bedfellows into unlikely relationships. Referring to her use of materials, she once said that she likes mechanical precision as much as hand-wrought imperfection. And it's this with which I began our conversation. Would she say that the tension between those two extremes is at the core of her work? Uh, I think I have a sort of love-hate relationship with material and every time I begin a new process it's a kind of polarizing sense of both writing a love letter but also beginning with a sense of brutalizing so you know the idea that I both make stuff myself in the studio but also engage many different people in terms of fabrication you know my relationship to material is always putting on a different kind of hat in terms of communication so I'm both very hand-wrought in analog processes, exploring things in the studio with clay or casting or hand painting, and then also working with highly specialized fabricators who are incredibly skilled with regards to process or can facilitate much greater demands on engineering just by virtue of the mechanical processes that they are set up to use. So that kind of binary existence of substance that is both very highly wrought and sophisticated or also looks like it is stuck together with spit and kind of combining those two different types of adjectival making is really fascinating for me because you can begin to introduce layers of perversion or unexpected error that become productive and fruitful so that kind of generative experience of asking substance to behave for you all the time and whether it behaves with its conventional meaning or its conventional recognizability in terms of what we're used to seeing when we look at process or it behaves completely differently and there is a a comedy or a sort of slapstick inversion to its use value and I think that conflation of two different types of productivity can really shift the outlines of recognizability of something and we see new meaning like quite literally new language appears. You'd use the term love letter there and also this idea of slapstick. One of the things that I see in your work, and it seems to me really present in both the viewer's experience, and it seems to me you're making, is there's an element of delight involved. And I sense it with your writing too. There's a delight in bringing words together and seeing what they can do, that kind of experimental kind of impulse, if you like. I think there is absolutely a, a joy in making and, and whether that joy is a kind of instant sort of brick on the head moment of true satisfaction or if it is something that is much more drawn out through various levels of difficulty and antagonism with something that you're putting together. It's too obvious, it's too difficult, it falls apart, it doesn't balance. And then that moment of sort of material ecstasy when something, whether it's by virtue of intuition or you've kind of like forced a a conceptual framework for something, it works, it looks good, it behaves. And that moment of thinking when you're sort of 
you have all of these ideas that you're holding in mind and they almost exist in different laminated planes and you're sort of shuffling through these imaginative playing cards of image and meaning and nothing quite makes sense and it's this sort of like cyclical moment of trying to piece these things together and find a new grammar for something that has I don't know a sense or designated meaning that isn't just hermetic feeling and then suddenly there's this glorious moment of alignment and I can never quite define or understand exactly where that point is but somehow things suddenly fit and it is just this like miracle light bulb moment of thinking that is it that's what I've been dreaming that's what I've been seeing but I haven't quite been able to pass in terms of material substance or you know give its relationship to gravity a, a true sense of solidity so there is a real joy in that a real pleasure you know and a love letter has that kind of bittersweet pleasure pain principle that you know love is not always happy it isn't always momentous it can be fleeting it can be brief it can be passionate but when it works it truly works one of the things i'm struck by when i look at the works is i don't know how it begins and i don't know how it ends in terms of the making and it seems to me that that must be an extraordinary negotiation you've hinted at it there Tell me about that. I mean, do you begin more or less the same way every time? Because I know you begin with lots of research every time. But can the sort of first, if you like, visual element vary enormously or will it tend to be quite consistent? It usually begins in quite a similar way. I have an enormous image bank of all kinds of images from many different sources, images I've taken myself, images that I find online, incidental moments that I come across in the street and and more often than not some kind of like tiny moment of I don't know an an image-based principle is the trigger for for thinking about what a work is and then I kind of build this sort of staggering momentum of of thinking whereby maybe I've seen a sentence in a book or some kind of like little small theoretical envelope that might begin to hold all of these things together and it is a sense of sort of setting out a fence if you like and within those fence you're kind of just chucking things over it and nothing's quite ordered everything's sort of like sitting in this nested mess but it's contained you know there is a sort of beginning logic and then that logic suddenly begins to take shape and form and that form has a clarity whether at that point it is a kind of self-contained clarity and maybe you can't even begin in language to describe what it is you know say I'm looking at I don't know the image of a sheep and I suddenly decide I'm going to read about ancient agriculture or I'm going to read about wool or I'm going to read about the production of jumpers in northern Australia who knows you know there is this kind of like tangential method of finding a rhythm and joining the dots and when the ideas start to come I, I both write about them you know sort of scribbles in a notebook and I also begin to draw them out in kind of diagrammatic sketches and these pen sketches just sort of build in terms of their annotative density and it's almost like making a map or a floor plan of how a work begins and whether that is a sort of instructive set of words like literally a descriptive language or a description of a process or a certain way I want something to look describing the seams and then I work very closely with the technical director of my studio who's incredibly fluent with CAD drawing and Rhino and he begins to translate from my very analog sketches and sketch up drawings 
a more fully formed idea of what a work is. It's a long process of agglomeration, but before anything is even made, there is a kind of like murderous example very closely of what it might look like. And I remember showing this to a friend once and he was like, you've absolutely murdered all substance. There is no pleasure in this. Like it's so didactic. There's no kind of like generative space for inflection, for intuition. I was like, but you've missed the point. I've been through that process. And this is the sort of like determined end point. And of course, within that process of producing and making things change and things don't work or things literally fall apart or they're too expensive or material doesn't bend a certain way, you know, empirical problems rather than conceptual problems. And in that process of kind of like gathering and sorting, I have new ideas and things begin in this sort of avalanche of, I don't know, ideas coalescing and morphing within one another. And it's really exciting. And I love going through that process and sort of emerging several months down the line with a plan. And at a certain point, that plan becomes the blueprint for execution. One really feels that when you're in a show of your work. So let's talk about the most recent Sadie Cole's show. There's a, a real constant sense of shifting transformation between all the different registers of the exhibition. So on the one hand, there's this upside down horse on the wall, which you know you shot the photograph of that horse in the actual gallery, right? And then created a fake gallery around it effectively. And then you have this quite crude but actually enormously complex construction of a horse in the gallery whose tail goes around almost like a duct around the uh, exhibition space you mentioned sheep actually in the previous answer but actually it was clear to me that you were thinking about the horse and you, you know there's one of the titles of the show was the almost horse and it just seems to me that you're teasing out again all these different possible means in which you can explore this idea of a horse and what it can signify all the loaded interpretations one might have relating to that entity. Yeah, and the, that show has a diptych title. So one title is The Almost Horse and the other title is Third Moment Profile. So already within the construction of the titling sequence, you have this immediate sense of duplicity or distrust and the adverb of almost being anyway a qualifying word, you know, the almost horse. It is not a horse or the blue horse or the happy horse you know the descriptive qualifier of that word is one of ambiguity and mistrust and the horse itself as, a, as an image within that show was almost arbitrary I I wanted a really loaded and kind of canonized image that could act as a vessel and by virtue of having a steeped history an art and a historical history a civic history a psychological history a mythological or fantastical history and of course the Greek history of Odysseus's folly of the Trojan horse. So all of these things that came as kind of like happy but free baggage with that idea of the horse was really interesting to me. And of course, the, the sheer absurdity of bringing a horse into a gallery in Mayfair, photographing it, and using that photograph as the backdrop for the majority of this work, albeit in a landscape that I had reconstructed in CGI to perform a perspectival trick. So when you looked through the window from the outside, the horse that existed already upside down, so one moment of remove from its sort of responsible, stable position on the earth, was also performing a secondary perspectival trick, being that the lines of the floor and the ceiling had been altered to create a kind of elongation of the back wall. So you had another sense of 
falsity and a kind of an elongation of this space to create a mistrust of the space that the horse was in. Completely shifted the space, didn't it? It was amazing, that effect. It created another space. You knew it was an image, and yet the space was completely shifted by it. And of course, the horse in the wallpaper image, you know, it's a real horse, but by virtue of being dropped into this digitized space, you know, its content was sort of removed. There was no physicality to this idea of the horse. It was simply an image and you know, again, performing its refusal to be a material horse, its refusal to be a language horse, and its refusal to be an image horse. So these three different levels of remove that were also performed by different objects in the show. There was, an, as you said, a kind of enormous horse structure with a tail kind of simulating this hanging ducting that was produced in steel and fabric. So, you know, these immediate connotations of provisionality of something that is tent-like in its construction and therefore suggests volume but is actually made incredibly economically. And then several panels, 26 of them, each depicting a shifting language and each one designated to correspond with a certain letter of the alphabet, so a literal A to Z. And within that A to Z, there was a narrative breakdown of a, of a story, and that story also describing a relationship between several characters and another horse. So again, this sort of completely bizarre tripartite relationship between three different classic narrative ways to describe a horse through image, through language, and through object. But each time that description of the horse failing, failing to actually mutate and produce the literal objective horse. So you know, the exhibition itself was a folly. And of course, beginning with that umbrella proposition of distrust, you know, that it gave beautiful metaphorical possibilities for for chance and for, you know, a new relationship in terms of seeing for the viewer. And then the second title of the show, Third Moment Profile, is taken from physics terminology. And I worked with some engineers on the structure of the large horse, figuring out, you know, quite literally the nuts and bolts of its fabrication, how heavy it would be, how much the material might deflect, whether it would fall over, where our points of suspension needed to be, you know, all the kind of like technical queries of, of understanding, putting a large sculpture into public space. And through that process, you know, I, I learned an enormous amount about engineering, albeit a sort of like dummy, sanitized uh, <laughs> user version. And the moment profile was something that recurred over and over again with regards to the stability of the steel rod that we were using. And the moment profile was the degree of deflection that a certain weight would exert on a straight line of that material. And if the moment profile was too large, the structure would be too bendy. It would curve too much. It would sag. And I just thought, what an exquisite kind of description for, for language, you know, this emotional weight of this project, this proposition to describe the impossible horse was inflecting this, I don't know, difficulty on the substance and meaning it would not behave with the rigor with which it was intended. So that became a sort of second remove of, of slippage for, for conceptually describing what this show was about. One thing I felt in that show, and I feel with all your work actually, is the role of drawing and how wonderfully elastic it is through the show. You talked about a plan effectively, but there were moments of actual drawing very clearly visible on the panel works. And then, of course, the, the 
constructed horse is you can see that it's a drawn structure effectively through the steel rods. Would you say that drawing underpins everything that you do, even those very sculptural elements, it seems to me are kind of like drawing in space? Yeah, it's funny. I I guess I've never thought about drawing as an underpinning mechanism, but absolutely it is. And I suppose I think of drawing or illustrating in descriptive terms what I do in a similar way to how I think about language. And these things are very elemental building blocks for beginning to describe something that you might be able to see in your mind's eye and trying to find a path for making that visible to an external audience, even if that's also making that visible for yourself. And I love diagrams and I don't always understand them. I have a very perverse relationship to technical drawings, for instance. It takes me a very long time to understand them. And I have this habit to sort of pretend that I understand mathematical concepts or you know, architectural projections or elevations. And oftentimes I'm looking, nodding along and I have no idea what I'm looking at. (laughs) And I am very good at imagining space, but I'm very bad at drawing that and kind of projecting what I can see onto paper. So in a way, when I am making drawings that are the beginning or starting point for an exhibition or a piece of work, they oftentimes look like scribbles. And that can be both frustrating for me, but also, you know, that byproduct of inefficiency is quite useful because it means that you don't immediately calcify what you're looking at. And by virtue of having an immediate clarity, it doesn't get lost or dismissed because it's too resolved. And, you know, accidentally badly drawing something with a poor dimensionality means that perhaps you add on some extra faces or a new roof, for instance, and that becomes a new mode of translation for somebody who might be talking me through this and helping me conceive it in digital space. And we find new versions of it, new looks, new ways for it to exist. And I feel like within the practice as a whole, I do so many different kinds of drawing. I make quick watercolors. I make incredibly slow pencil drawings using a dental microscope. I make drawings that are facilitators of ideas. I make drawings that need to be more well-behaved and sanitized in order to communicate objectively to somebody who is used to looking at engineering drawings. And I make drawings that sort of diagram intent for language or intent for critical writing. So there are many different kinds of drawings and those things sort of coalesce as a whole. And I'm really in general interested in the point at which diagrammatic clarity and whether that is a vector line or a symbol or the sign on a weather chart becomes wilted by a kind of collaged abstraction and maybe that is like simply having too many ideas and not understanding how to process them or realizing that actually a diagram is useful sometimes and it's nice to signify its speed in the same way that a billboard might but it's also interesting to muddle and confuse and obfuscate and those things can work nicely in tandem but they can also be very difficult to keep track of. Let's move on to the questions that we ask all our guests. Who was the first artist whose work you loved? <laughs> 
So I think there are three, and they kind of chart a chronology from being very small to being kind of pre-adult, so my teenage years. The first one is Miro, and I don't know where I first saw Miro's work, but I think it may have been my grandmother gave me one of those blockbuster sets of art booklets. Maybe they were called like The Great Artist or something, these sort of like Reader's Digest or perhaps, I don't know, some other British serial magazine produced kind of monographic books on artists. And I used to sit on the floor as a sort of six, seven-year-old and shuffle these around. And I remember for the first time seeing this Miro painting and I don't know what it was or what it was called, but I just remember these colorful blobs on a blue background and feeling so sort of struck by that elemental and cosmic power of the color and the shapes colliding. And at that point, my grandmother had also given me a set of cheap acrylics and I was painting these crappy paintings on board and I copied this Miro painting over and over again. You know, he's still an artist I look to for that sort of sheer experimental permission that he gave himself to be both an incredibly entrenched political artist who disavowed the social constraints and norms of the time, but also somebody who embedded his work with so much humor and so much material gymnastics. And my parents still have this Miro painting that I reproduced on their wall. Mm. And it's horrible. It's a terrible painting, but it's (laughs) interesting for me now to see it because the background and the kind of colored blobs are painted in acrylic. And then I must have had some sort of like deep frustration at not being able to paint the black lines either thin enough or with my small hand was not steady enough. And I have done it all in permanent marker. (laughs) So the permanent marker has this weird kind of purple iridescence that stands out against the grain of the cheap acrylic. And I suppose maybe there's something of my fascination of the vector line in looking back at that with both horror and also pleasure in the sheer kind of like crassness of its execution. And then moving on to my sort of 10 to 13 year old self, I lived in Pennsylvania for that time in the US as a kid. And we lived very near to a place called Chad's Ford, which was where the Wyeth family lived. So the Wyeth family, NC, Andrew and Jamie Wyeth, is sort of like great American tradition of painters. And these painters were mythic than my school and art class, for instance. And we were always taught about them. And I was particularly drawn to the incredible sort of draftsman-like quality of the work and just this amazing execution of light and space, but crossed with this very odd, almost mythological sense of, of storytelling within the work and these weird constructions of space that might look like the natural world or, you know, an island or the forest. So these sort of classic tropes of setting the space to tell a story and then populated by these weird figurative stand-ins that, you know, in my mind became ciphers for all these other wild narrative excesses. And again, I used to copy these paintings over and over again. And then the third artist I think I truly loved when I was a bit older in my sort of, I don't know, 16, 17, 18, was Rauschenberg. Again, somebody I still love today for this incredible freedom that he gave his sort of authorial spirit to make things and produce images without fear, without constraint. In Rauschenberg, there is that wonderful materiality that I sense in your work, that sort of 
no holds barred experimental approach to the space of the rectangle, the canvas, breaking it up, exploding it. And it seems to me you're constantly exploding your territory. <laughs> is that fair? I, th- <laughs> I take that as a compliment. I think what is also great about Rauschenberg's work is this unapologetic irony when something becomes too kitsch or, you know, the painterly drip is so overwrought that it becomes like tautology. You know, it is a, it is a constructed example of error. And in that sense of producing the drip, there is a cheesiness because it has been you know, it's been forced, the hand has been forced, so the authorial intent is is false. And there is no apology for that in Rauschenberg. And I love this explosive sense and generous sense of, you spoke about joy earlier, like this sheer pleasure in in finding new modes of making visible what he was thinking, what the political currents of the time might have been, what his inner emotional landscape looked like, the complications of his sexuality or his visibility as a male artist. And you know, I still find that fascinating. Which historical artist do you turn to the most today? I'm almost ashamed of this one because I feel like in our in our current mode, it's a, a problematic answer. <laughs> but I can't help myself. And I am a devoted Kippenberger fan. You know, I have a sort of special space on my bookshelf that occupies approximately a metre and a half of Kippenberger books. And I just, I'm so blown away every time by this mode of excess that he inhabited in both life and work you know this kind of inflationary aesthetic that on the surface shows no respect to the artistic systems of the time no sense of shame no sense of fear you know but also as a kind of abandonment of critical judgment and you know his permission to fail and his permission to enrage and insult you know, he had the position to do that as a, a white male artist operating in Cologne. But I still find this incredible combination of linguistic excess and material excess fascinating because ultimately what it boils down to is, is a perversely and paradoxically streamlined language where almost every Kippenberger you look at, there is some moment of true genius that you can take away and you know, just a fractional moment of a Kippenberger is like a whole narrative essay of productivity, you know, and his work often looks like it operates under the guise of a sort of social or studio-based shambles, but actually it's so precise. His Peter artworks, for instance, these Mm. incredible constructions of chance and personal biography, and this kind of anthropomorphizing of substance whereby you give multiple sculptures the same name and ask them to behave in this very strange and sort of flirtatious narrative circle but also you know using the word peter as a sort of linguistic stand-in whereby peter becomes a sort of placeholder morpheme and by virtue of that you know everything has a peterness like a peter kind of guy or a peter kind of sofa or a peter kind of bathtub you know, almost like a stand-in for the word thingy-majig. And I love that sort of both self-deprecating sense of, well, this is how it is and this is what fits and this is what I had to hand. And then this incredible assurity of that provisionality, which makes, you know, the visible glue seam or the crappily cut piece of wood become authentic and meant, you know, and that sort of 
declarative sense of, yes, this is what it was supposed to look like, even if quite clearly the biographical narrative suggests otherwise. Nothing is out of bounds with Kippenberger, and every moment is a moment of experimentation, and an experimentation that is pushed to the ultimate point of breaking, and sometimes it does break, and it's offensive and horrible, and other times it doesn't, and it encapsulates this mood of exuberance that is marvellous to behold. I want to ask about the way you use historical artists' imagery in your work. One of the most obvious examples for me is there's a work called All Mother after James Ensor, in which you use Ensor's My Dead Aunt or an image from, you know, based upon that. Can you say what role quotation plays in your work? And is it a difficult decision when to quote and how to quote? I think I'm a complicit plagiarist. That would be the answer to that question. And I think theft habits in general, you know, we thieve all the time from all kinds of different sources. James Ensor is definitely somebody I look back to over and over again for the exquisiteness of his hand. You know, his line in drawing is so amazing and so communicative. And really as an image maker, he constructed some of the most bizarre but also poignant and searing moments of kind of political clarity of mocking, of kind of idiosyncratic fuck yous to the politess of the time. And I absolutely steal from James Ensor all the time, hand (laughs) on heart, (laughs) you hear it now. But in terms of legitimizing quoting, you know, sometimes I, in the title, for instance, give a nod to, you know, what the source imagery might be, like you mentioned after James Ensor, and other times maybe the quotation I feel like there's a hierarchy of quotation. And if you're stealing from Rembrandt, so be it. You know, Rembrandt's <laughs> had his celebratory moment and I've, I've pinched it. You know, so stealing a Rembrandt cat goes sort of unquoted. Whereas, you know, in other instances, it feels like there needs to be a descriptive nod to the source. You know, and I'm looking at so much image all the time. You know, inevitably there is a degree of osmosis and sometimes that goes unnoticed and perhaps you've stolen something that you haven't quite realized you've stolen and I think all artists do that all the time we borrow from each other we recombine we collage and that is the kind of the joy and the perversity of making things real let's talk about contemporary artists which contemporary artists do you most admire this is a really hard one there are a few Kai Althoff is one of them Robert Gober Mm. Charlene von Heil Mm. Rosemary Trockel And I don't want to say too much about any of these artists other than they have so committed to creating their own worlds with an intensity of intention and production that is truly magical. And it's like magic to walk into these all-encompassing practices that are not apologetic, that make invention from all manner of images and materials and linguistic conceits. And those four artists, I, I would give the terminology hardcore. You know, they are so, so rigorously committed to what they are doing. And I, it's inspiring for many different reasons with each of them to see their work and a pleasure. And I'm sure I steal from all of them. <laughs> but I love all the work so much. One of the things about them all, I guess, is that they have created a space for themselves where they have a license to rove and to and to push their works in totally new directions. And I'm thinking of Charlene von Heil particularly and the way that 
it's often said of her work that each individual painting could be by a different painter, and yet it's inimitably her. There's a curious risk you take by being polyphonic as an artist, in the sense that people find you difficult to pin down. But at the same time, artists like Charlene von Holt are so permissive to other artists and like they give other artists license to say, oh, yeah, actually, I can do that too, sort of thing. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, and I think her articulacy, both in terms of what she makes, but also how she speaks or writes about her work is almost unparalleled. It's shocking to me how smart she can be in all different modes. You know, it's funny because I actually would instantly recognize a Charlene von Hale. I've never really imagined that you would conceive of looking at that work as looking at multiple different practices, but I can understand having this uh, different route for production whereby the different kinds of speed or time you invest in a certain mode of mark making can create very different final appearances, you know, and what she gives herself and other people permission to do is use surrogates, this kind of surrogate practice of needing a certain type of color or a certain type of form in an artwork and connecting that immediately with some sort of symbolic value in our domestic world something we recognize maybe a pair of breasts a a bell a bottle of milk and using that form but then somehow using it in such a method of fracture or a method of economical description that it breaks down it becomes something else and yet the underlying symbolic intent is there you know and she is an incredible constructor of images whether those images are belied by an initial sense of abstraction i feel like there is always this sort of deep communicative potential and deep narrative potential for analogy or metaphor that is also steeped in an incredible knowledge of art history or craft or theory as we speak there is a show of Hervé Telemac the great painter who sadly died very soon after the show opened and you designed the layout for that show. Tell me about that experience because it must have been profound. Oh, Hervé was a magician. You know, visiting him in his studio was quite literally the epitome of being a kid in a sweet shop and really just wandering around this magical enclosed space where he clearly spends so much time and energy investing in a practice that he has been working on for 80-odd years. And I didn't know Hervé's work until about six or so years ago when our work was hung side by side in a group show. And I remember seeing the install images of this show and just thinking, what is that magical thing? And it was a really small work with a kind of diagrammatic painting of a pair of shoes. And across the painting was slung a wooden rod. And on top of the wooden rod, there was a piece of striped fabric as though it was a towel hanging in the bathroom. And it was a very small and kind of crudely constructed work. And I just thought it was so eminently beautiful. And then I kind of promptly forgot about the work. And I was invited when Hervé had to show the Serpentine to write a text for that catalogue, which I did. And I really spent a lot of time, you know, reading around the work, looking at the work. And eventually the Serpentine show traveled to the Aspen Art Museum. And I was asked by a series of happenstance and chance to do the exhibition design. Um, and the museum is quite big, but also divided very succinctly into three rooms of differing sizes. And Hervé gave me free reign to work on this exhibition design and come up with a, a concept that would hold the work. And together with Joseph Constable, 
we put together a checklist of all the different works. And the main impetus behind the exhibition design was to produce several different vernacular structures that could work in terms of presenting various different apertures that would allow paintings or groups of sculptures to be seen both in isolated spaces but also when looking from afar or looking from unexpected perspectives that you would see all of these works by virtue of introducing windows or doors or strange cutouts into the spaces you would see these works laminated together in the same pictorial plane and the show is called a hopscotch of the mind and I think that intentional flurry and sort of gymnastic ability to move between image and language and content and politics and context and geography and artistic quotation is something that Hervé does with such speed and such ability and it's integral to the work. So I created these three different architectural structures, one that kind of mimicked the half-finished house or barn type structure another one that was a set of exploded walls that almost mimicked the provisionality of a, of a tent or another sort of string-based series of architectures, and a third in the smallest room that enacted cubicles, so sort of office-based cubicles that you know inherently speak about the speed of capital power, of spatial containment of bodies going to work every day and becoming part of a system. So we designed these three different spaces in which all the work could be seen together. And when you're doing that, when you're working with another artist's work, can you apply the same sort of principles that you apply to your own work in terms of the design? Are you working with it almost as a sort of a form of your own work? Or do you have to kind of separate that side of you out from it in a certain sense? I mean, it's strange. I've never done it before. And in a way, there was this enormous relief that the ideas in the show were not my ideas and the author of the work was not me and I could almost sit back in this relaxed position and think this work is incredible and I am so lucky and privileged to spend time around it and handling it and morphing it into new relationships and I feel like Hervé anyway we share many similarities in terms of you know, what our starting points might be or our kind of cultural inflections with regard to the language that we're interested in or the strangeness of using materials that are unexpected within paintings or within sculptural appendages or structures. So there was that kind of inherent sense of communality in terms of looking, but equally we are from entirely different geographies, different ages, different linguistic contexts and there was both a freedom but also a sort of responsibility and I'm really proud of that show because the work is so varied and so exquisite and we have you know almost 60 works from a kind of cross-pollinated time period from the early 50s to present day and it is both so contemporary and contemporary in the sense of quite literally it's aesthetic how it looks it looks like it was made yesterday a few months ago, a year ago, and yet it's political and connective register to social morality or tension is so vibrant. A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the arts and culture app. The free app offers access to more than 130 cultural organisations through a single download, with new guides being added regularly. 
Bloomberg Connects has a growing contingent of guides to European institutions, including Luma Arles in France and the iFilm Museum and Rembrandt House Museum in Amsterdam, as well as dozens of museums, galleries and foundations across the UK and US. As you've heard, Helen Martin has co-curated an exhibition of the work of Hervé Telemac at the Aspen Art Museum in Colorado. If you download Bloomberg Connects, you'll find a digital guide to the museum with an in-depth feature on that show. This includes interviews with Helen about her designs for the exhibition and her wider thoughts about co-curating it with Joseph Constable. You can also find an archive of past shows and details of the museum's forthcoming programme. To explore digital guides to all the partnering institutions, download the app today. It's available from the App Store and Google Play, and you can keep up to date by following Bloomberg Connects on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. What do you have pinned to your studio wall? I try and keep very little pinned to the studio wall, other than very responsibly descriptive packs of ideas for work. So we have kind of magnetic strips and various magnetic hooks on which hang clipboards and dumped files of all kinds. So whether that is text or drawings, you know, things just kind of coupled together in kind of project packs. And in terms of sort of fleeting scraps or intimate scraps of daily stuff, I have almost nothing. I think I have a a postcard by Vuillard of some beautiful checked fabric and and that's about it. I always worry that you pin things on your wall and by virtue of a negative kind of process of osmosis, they become incorporated in the work in a way that feels habitual because you've been looking at them all the time and things lose their freshness or they are calcified in a way that is not generative. Which museum or gallery do you visit the most? So I tend to visit museums and galleries in bursts and I see everything all at once and then I don't go for months. The one thing that I do go and see over and over again and it's almost like a a chapel-like pilgrimage and I go to the Tate Tanks to see a work by Fishley and Vice um, which I believe is untitled. I think it was made sort of 92 to 2000. And it's great because nobody's ever in there because the work itself is one of the polyurethane carved works that looks like a construction site. So I think people poke their head in and they assume, nope, this is this is under construction. It's not for me. I won't go in. And, you know, I love anyway the sort of tautological deception that this room has been designed to look like a work under construction. You know, and this gorgeous pretense that the work is not a work. And... I love Fishley and Vice. I feel like they are so often creating these works as phantoms whereby things approximate something that looks like it has functionality or use value. And by virtue of its material construction, you know, in this case, this work is carved almost entirely from polyurethane foam and its sort of simulacra to reality is so perfect. And yet it has this sort of bizarre chalky glaze. So if if you're really looking carefully, you can sort of see the softness kind of reveals itself, you know, and it has so many formerly exquisite moments by virtue of the fact that the majority of this work is composed on differently sized white plinths. So, you know, almost like an analog of snow. And of course you drop anything into snow and it looks beautiful. It's a, a simply gorgeous landscape. I've seen this work so many times this year. I kind of walk cross the river, walk over the bridge and make a beeline for that work. You can walk in with headphones on, not see anyone and just sort of stare at it and then move on. And 
you know, for me, that is sort of like the sculptural equivalent of, of going to church. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have no religion other than the white button down shirt. But seeing that Fishley Vice moment in the Tate Tanks, you know, if I'm having a bad day, it fills me with pleasure. It's a beautiful work. Which cultural experience changed the way you see the world? I think this would have to be the digital camera. When I was 16, I was given a digital camera by my parents. I think it was the first Fujifilm digital camera. And anyway, as an object, and for somebody who knew absolutely nothing about photography, but pretended that they might, even though I was totally irresponsible and would never read manuals, I knew nothing about analog photography. But somehow this digital camera as an object really piqued my interest and I think retrospectively I was probably obsessed by its skeuomorphic possibility you know the kind of like the violence of that false click that the digital camera produces you know it has so much intent it has so much authorial assurance you know you believe you are capturing a moment of importance but of course it's a simulated trick it's generated you know these images that are captured on that camera are fluid they're made of literal liquid you see them on a screen, they have appeared immediately and there is a strange sort of underlying violence to that possibility for such quick capture. And I also loved, again, the sort of skeuomorphic strangeness of this rubber grip that was textured like leather. So this strange little kind of brick-like object that, you know, of course in, I don't know when it was when I was 16, that uh, early 2000s this brick-like clunky object and just that possibility to take so many pictures and be totally irresponsible with how you might use the camera in terms of its narrative capture because you weren't wasting film there was no kind of like voyeuristic descent into waiting for film to return and see what you'd captured because it was all there like this impatient teenager could see everything on the screen at once and somehow I was very interested in Guy Bourdin at the time and I for whatever reason and I used to using this new camera in the first days of of unwrapping it I would dress my little sister up in outrageous outfits and (laughs) cover her in yellow lipstick and poise these sort of creepy misogynistic pictures in the cellar to try and replicate this moment of high fashion with my new digital camera I was going to ask you if you were initially using it as an art medium, whether you'd already decided at that stage whether you wanted to be an artist or not. You know, it's probably incredibly embarrassing, but I'm sure at a certain point I was also subscribing to fashion magazines. I used to get Pop and ID, and I remember taking these photographs and I'm I'm pretty sure I have a memory of sending them to Pop magazine. (laughs) You know, these photographs of my, my sister in our seller or something like that under the guise of imagining that this is what contemporary image making looked like that's wonderful which writers or poets do you return to the most oh i think this is the hardest question because i think this is the territory that i'm most inspired by but there are a certain few writers that i return to over and over again and when i'm lost these are moments of realignment and one of those a kind of architectural pair would be Robert Venturi and Denise Scott Brown Mm. whose book along with Stephen Eisenhower Learning from Las Vegas truly changed my life all three of them write with such exquisite articulacy about the material world and our relationships to an architecture whose 
elemental qualities become both symbol and image and how we relate to them, how they have a responsibility to gravity, how we narrate time and speed and access into built environment. Do you go to the Sainsbury Wing at the National Gallery, which is their sort of most prominent building in in the UK, I guess? Do you have a sort of similarly reverent relationship to that building or is it their writing and their texts that actually have greater import for you? I love that building and I used to visit it all the time as soon as I knew that it was built by them and try and stare and stare at these different moments, you know, the tall inscription on the stonework, the facade, the gate making, the various different filigrees of over-the-top ornamental excess, both inside on the lampwork and on the outside of the building. And I'm kind of heartbroken that that building is set for renovation. But I think their writing really just triggered like an explosion of possibilities in my mind in terms of creating shapes or creating diagrams for sculpture, for instance, and via various different circuitous routes of projection, of language, of, I don't know, self-projected theoretical conceits you could make something entirely different and a house was no longer a house but a kind of funfair of exuberance another writer who continues to blow my mind would be Roland Barthes and his book mythologies with its completely bonkers and radical chapters you know wine and milk the Romans in movies the new citron saponins and detergents you know these absolutely eclectic range of substances taken into almost excruciating sets of semantic probing whereby you know something as ubiquitous as milk when scrutinized in the context of wine becomes something other than a nourishing byproduct of the dairy industry you know it becomes clouded and difficult and biblical you know and wine is ferocious and mercurial and ultimately a psychological imbibement of outrageous newness and I just think his detail and his grammatical precision and also wildness in terms of examining our domestic life you know almost becomes like this Daniel Spuery-esque anecdotal topologies or topographies of you know, the things most proximate to our daily lives. And if you're looking at things on a table, for instance, your coffee cup might just be a coffee cup, but in the context of some crumbs and an open page and a little bit of handwritten script ultimately becomes something absolutely different. And this potential for magic by virtue of sequencing is something that Roland Barthes does so well. And in a similar vein, a book like A Thousand Plateaus would be something that Perhaps the ultimate project is never to read that book, but to dip in and out like a maniac and behave with all the frenzy of the text and possibility for oddness and deterritorializing and sort of sonic violence and really kind of replicate the meaning and intent of that book in the method of reading. I literally could flick through that book and find a single sentence that is the starting point for it a whole cosmology of art making, you know, and something that with absolute deliberateness, but also a polyphonic open-endedness describes birdsong, madness, anorexia, addiction, politicizing of geography, space, you know, everything, everything is covered in this book. It's all encompassing and it's absolutely unexpected. And I think so many of us as artists and 
thinkers, writers have stolen from it. (laughs) (laughs) Did you aspire to that level of open-endedness? Because I'm speaking as somebody who's been dipping into your novel and therefore I'm conscious of that effect that I can alight on a page and can take something from that and return to a different page and take something differently. There's a kind of fragmentedness which I'm really enjoying about it. Obviously, it's very difficult to say, I set out to write this novel and therefore I took this writer and this writer and I said, I want to do it like that. But was Roland Barthes writing sort of in your mind as you were writing? Maybe what was in my mind as I was writing, when David Foster Wallace wrote Infinite Jest, he composed it around the concept of a Sierpinski gasket, which is a piece of mathematical logic. It's a modal fractal that essentially, if you were to draw it, looks like a series of equilateral triangles subdivided almost infinitely by more equilateral triangles. So a triangle within a triangle within a triangle and so forth. And he set himself the task of replicating within the kind of envelope proposition of his novel, all of these different and perhaps completely detached narrative sequences, characters, timescales, settings that could exist independently, but when brought together by the deliberacy of the novel. I think the beginning impulse for the novel, The Boiled In Between, I was really actually thinking about architecture. And I thought, what would happen if you tried to project a narrative onto a house? And you use the house as the starting point, as a sort of substitute structure for having a beginning, a middle and an end. And instead of those three classic principles of storytelling, perhaps you have a basement, you have a ground floor and you have an attic. And what it would mean to sort of, in narrative terms, change the order of appearance of these spaces or change how your body moved through them or change how the characters moved through them. And in the end, the novel looks nothing like that it's absolutely not a recognizable blueprint but what I did have were these two sort of binary characters what you presume to be a man and what you presume to be a woman and then this overarching chorus of voices called the messes who almost act as the moral compass or the kind of ethical barometer for how these two pretty despicable beige characters exist in their daily life together or apart and There is no classic narrative sequence to this book. You know, there is an overriding narrative arc and things happen, but things sort of happen incidentally. And if you were to chart the chronological process, perhaps we only look at a snapshot of a few days or a week. You know, place is not specifically defined, but it is conjured with regard to its descriptive intensity. So you have a sense of where you are, but nothing is declared. And of course, within that novel... You know, so many of my own personal interests are explored or things become technical very quickly and suddenly you are reading about water tendons on a garden sprinkler or you're reading about the miserable sogginess but tropical intensity of a kitchen trash can. You know, there are multiple sets of detail and there are multiple sets of of storytelling intent and ultimately what you receive is, again, a kind of love letter to substance and how as ontological creatures with daily habits, we begin to recognize rhythms in ourselves and rhythms in the world around us. And, you know, how as sort of psychological beings, we unpick those things and they perhaps become motifs or ciphers for other enigmatic ways of of retranslation.
What music or other audio do you listen to while you're working? I don't listen to any music while I'm working. I can't do it. I wish I could. But as soon as I have music on, I lose myself. I find it more distractive than a stranger sort of chattering at volume next to you. So I almost exclusively listen to no music in the studio. What I do listen to, and I almost exclusively need to be plugged into this, is Audible. I listen to, to audiobooks, and I binge audiobooks like they're going out of business. I get through <laughs> hundreds a year, and it's an enormous source of pleasure because I can multitask while listening to them. I can't write while listening to them. I need silence, but I can work on stuff, move around the studio, make molds, pour resin, weld, do whatever whilst listening to an audiobook. And it makes me feel incredibly smug because it feels like I'm being super productive by digesting information, but it just fills me with such a great sense of pleasure listening to them. And it's something I've done since I was a child. I can quite possibly quote the beginning chapters of Pride and Prejudice back to you word for word because I've listened to it so many times. <laughs> do you see listening to audiobooks as an equivalent to reading the books or do you treat it as a completely separate activity? I think it's it's a separate activity in terms of you know, it's sort of synaptic entry into your brain is perhaps more fleeting because you're quite simply not reading over and over again the same things. But I absolutely remember audiobooks I've listened to. I just think of it as a very happy alternative to reading a book. You know, reading a book, you have dedicated um, a physicality to that process. Whereas reading an audiobook, it's mobile, it's lithe, and it allows many different things to function all at once. Is there a particular discipline in your daily working life that you see as an essential ritual? I think when you're an artist, you don't work in the same way that people imagine that word to mean. So I think I probably have a commitment to a very non-rigorized schedule. <laughs> I work all the time. And I think the only thing that I truly need to facilitate that and I simply can't function without it is coffee and as another sort of like a new thing that I've come to I do reformer pilates three times a week and that is rare for me because it has become the one thing in addition to my work that I schedule my life around <laughs> is that something to do with the physicality of sculpture because Pilates is quite often a sort of remedial thing in terms of injury and the wear and tear of physical work and you know, your work can be really heavy, right? So are you shifting stuff about in the studio? I do find that I often hurt myself, but that's not because I'm undergrowing a, a kind of grueling schedule of self-punishment and making stuff all the time, but it's because I simply don't ask for help and I'm too stubborn. But I love Pilates because it is so nice being told what to do. If you could live with just one work of art, what would it be? I think maybe rather than a work of art, I would like to inhabit Lena Lobardi's glass house and that would probably be fleeting because I would be so scared of being inside with all of that glass when night fell <laughs> but in terms of creating a clean kind of brutalist palette and a sort of methodology for you know perhaps what she conceived as an ethical way to live within space that might be it and then perhaps if I were allowed two other things to sneak in there I might have a to lose the trek brothel painting and Man Ray's Duchamp collaboration, Dust Breeders. And lastly, what's art for? 
art is for no policing of fantasy and for ensuring that the very real world around us is never diluted or calcified. I also love anagrammatically that the word artist could be rearranged to make the construction tis rat. I feel like artists are inherently rats. We crawl about the city, not necessarily knowing street names, but fundamentally finding modes of interest en route. And there's something incredible about this fervent ground level activity that really speaks about what art is for and how it should be consumed and seen by a very open general public. Helen, thank you so much. Thank you, Ben. Eve Telemac, a hopscotch of the mind, is at the Aspen Art Museum, Aspen, Colorado, in the US, until the 26th of March 2023. And that's it for this episode. Please subscribe to A Brush With wherever you're listening and do give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Please also subscribe to our sister podcast, The Week in Art, a deep dive into the latest big art world stories, the top shows and the key issues every Friday. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. Production, editing and sound design on a brush with are by David Clack and the producers of the Art Newspaper Podcasts are Amy Dawson and Henrietta Bentall. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway. A big thank you to Helen Martin. We'll see you next week. Bye for now. A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. Download Bloomberg Connects today and discover cultural institutions on demand.